Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrew Matišák, and I work as a deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Devi Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. Biodar Alejandro Sanchez is an analyst of defense, trade, and geopolitical issues in Eastern Europe, Central Asia, and the Western Hemisphere, and the president of the Second Floor Strategies, a consulting firm in Washington, D.C. As his expertise stretched from the post-Soviet space to Latin America, I picked Alex's brain and we talked about how the mentioned regions reacted to the Russian war against Ukraine. The focus of our conversation has been Kazakhstan, but we also talked about Moldova and Latin America and the Caribbean. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. Thank you. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. Alex, you have a quite unique expertise that covers Latin America and the post-Soviet space. So I would like to talk about how both of those regions react to Russia's war. Let's crisscross the world a bit. That's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah, many people probably expected. But except for Belarus, Kazakhstan will be the main ally of Russia as Moscow is waging the war against Ukraine. And especially after the bloody January of 2022, as the CSTO agreed to deploy troops in Kazakhstan and that helped the government to suppress the protest. And no matter what we think about current Kazakh president, Kasim Jomart Tokayev, it looks like that he is even willing to distance himself from Russia and criticize Russia. Is this surprise for you or not really and why? Not really. I say that because the president maintains a very pragmatic foreign policy, which follows well with Kazakhstan's well-known multi-vector foreign policy strategy, which dates back to the independence of Kazakhstan, in which essentially Kazakhstan doesn't want to have enemies. Kazakhstan wants to be friends with everybody. So yes, to your point, let, let me explain what Kazakhstan has, has done or, or said regarding Ukraine and Russia. Kazakhstan has not supported Russia's war in Ukraine. It has not sent Kazakhstani troops to Ukraine. Astana has prohibited its citizens from participating in the war. Tokai has also not praised the, the Russia's decisions. And actually, in his September speech at the United Nations General Assembly here in, over in New York, he said, and, I, and he talked about, and I quote, that the three primordial principles have, need to be respected, namely the sovereign equality of states, the ter- territorial integrity of states, and the peaceful coexistence between states. He went to say that the global existence of checks and balances has failed to maintain peace and stability. It sounds like a criticism of Russia. He did not mention Ukraine or Russia by name, but I think the message is pretty clear. But at the same time, Kazakhstan has not openly criticized Russia either. For example, Kazakhstan has not voted against Russia in resolutions at the United Nations General Assembly. Back in April, Russia was suspended from the UN Human Rights Council. Kazakhstan voted against that resolution. Bilateral relations between the two countries remain strong. President Tokayev and President Putin have met several times after the war started. As recently as November of 2022, uh, President Tokayev went to Moscow. He met with Putin to celebrate the 18th Interregional Cooperation Forum. President Putin praised President Tokayev for being re-elected in the recent uh, Kazakhstan elections. And I think for the, re- the reason for this basic pragmatism and understanding of geopolitics and other factors at, at play. 
On the one hand, Kazakhstan doesn't want to be in Russian's sphere of influence. And most more importantly, Kazakhstan doesn't want to, the world to perceive Kazakhstan as being part of Russia's sphere of influence, like, for example, Belarus. In fact, since independence, Kazakhstan has worked very hard to develop an image of being a leader in Central Asia that has global ambitions. Blindly following Moscow regarding Ukraine would certainly damage its international reputation. On the other hand, Kazakhstan cannot afford itself to distance itself from Russia too much for very badly reasons, which I think we're going to talk about later. Uh, the obvious one would be that there are concerns, which I think are a little bit valid, that Russia could retaliate against Kazakhstan for not being supported enough. And there have been claims for, by Russian officials, celebrities, YouTubers, that Kazakhstan is either part of Russia or could be attacked for not supporting Moscow in its military operations in Ukraine. So to pick up on your last point, do you think that if Russia would be quickly successful in Ukraine, as the Kremlin clearly hope, did at least some people in Moscow think that Kazakhstan should be the next military target? In August 2002, Russian expressed that Dmitry Medvedev wrote on his social media that there will be no order in Kazakhstan until the Russians get there. The post was deleted and Medvedev claimed that his account on Vekontakte was hacked. But still, what do you think about it? I remember that post. I think he also said that Kazakhstan is an artificial state, had not existed before the Soviets arrived. A couple of points before I give my opinion. One, certainly the Russian government and the Russian military started the war in Ukraine with a lot of optimism. After all, the Russian military has been successful, let's say, in the past 14 years. They were successful in the 2008 war against Georgia, in which a possession of Kassia declared the independence. It was largely because of Moscow. In 2014, they annexed Crimea, as we all know. The Russian military has also, was also quite successful and has been successful in its participation in Syria back in the Assad regime, not to, at least to help the Assad regime stay in power, which was really the objective of, of the operation. And the Wagner mercenary group has operated in Africa in countries like Libya, Central African Republic, I think more, recent, more recently Mali. Two, from what they say, what from analysts tend that work on Africa say has been successful, at least in supporting these local governments stay in power. I can understand why Moscow believed that their campaign in Ukraine would be quick and successful. And even people in Washington and Europe believed that yeah, Kiev was going to fall in a couple of days, which clearly hasn't happened. I think that, yes, if the war had gone as expected, as Moscow expected, then the Russian government would be confident about a new military operation elsewhere, not just in Kazakhstan, but in other post-Soviet countries like Moldova and like Azerbaijan. I will come back to Moldova, but why Azerbaijan? Azerbaijan has been criticized by some Russian politicians as well, who are actually in power. And one example is the politician, the lawmaker, Mikhail Delyagin. He's a member, deputy chair of the Duma's Economic Policy Committee, who last year criticized Azerbaijan for violating a ceasefire with Armenia. Delyagin called Azerbaijan a satellite of the Americans, a Turkish proxy, like you, you can somehow, as if you can somehow be both at the same time, which I don't think is possible, and that Azerbaijan represented a clear threat. He actually even went and posted in his Telegram account a poll asking whether Azerbaijan should be nuked by Russia because of his actions. And most people apparently voted in favor of it, which is just quite problematic. So yes, so it's not just Kazakhstan. There are concerns that other post-Soviet states could be uh, attacked by Moscow if the war had gone differently. But coming back to Kazakhstan, right now, I certainly doubt that, that Moscow wants to open up a second theater of operations. And I don't think that the Russian military is capable of doing that anyways. As for how real the threat is that Russia could, will want to attack Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan's attitude has been that it doesn't perceive Russia as a threat. The Kazakhstani government, the Kazakhstani military have not taken any 
actions, as far as I can tell, that will make Russia be concerned. For example, the Kazakhstan government, Kazakhstan military updates military doctrine just a few months ago, I think in October. And the most important part of the doctrine is Article 32, which says that Kazakhstan does not consider any country to be a threat to its national integrity. That statement, that, that article remains the same. Kazakhstan cannot apply to, to NATO, cannot apply to the European Union. It's a member of the Eurasian Economic Union. It's a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. There, logically, there's no need for Russia to want to attack Kazakhstan. But the problem is that, well, the Moscow may see a military operation as necessary for its national interest, maybe to demonstrate its military strength, to just secure Kazakhstan's back into its orbit. So, well, from my perspective, and I'm here in Washington, D.C., as a neutral analyst, I don't see a reason why, why Russia will want to attack Kazakhstan. There's nothing that Kazakhstan has done or said to, want to merit such an attack. Policymakers in Moscow, military officials may see the situation differently. Yeah, that's a very good point. They might see it differently for whatever reasons. But uh, in general, how much does Kazakhstan need Russia and vice versa? Let's talk about geography, which I think we people tend to forget about it, but let's talk about geography. The border between Kazakhstan and Russia is 7,644 kilometers. That's the second largest border in the world, only after the U.S.-Canada border. So these countries are quite literally united at the hip. They, they cannot be separated from each other. So just from a geographical point of view, Kazakhstan cannot fully distance itself from Russia, just from like a physical point of view, and, and same for Russia. Point one. Point two is trade. Trade in 2022 between Russia and Kazakhstan hovered around $24.5 billion. And I'll say the number again, $24.5 billion. Russia is actually Kazakhstan's largest trade partner. And this is an amount of, do- of, of money that Kazakhstan cannot simply put at, like cut off. So there, there's no country that can, really, that can truly replace Russia, in that sense, in China. China is not, it's not going to double its amount of trade. I know, for example, Kazakhstan will certainly love to increase trade with the United States and other countries like outside the region. U.S.-Kazakh trade is hovers around $2 billion. So there's no country or even a block of countries, including the European Union, that can really replace Russia. At the same time, Kazakhstan has been a reliable friend, neighbor and a reliable partner of Russia, for reasons that I've mentioned already, you know, the, uh, the United Nations. Kazakhstan votes in favor of Russia, or at least not to hurt Russia. Uh, Kazakhstani troops train alongside Russian troops as part of the army games, which just happened this past August. Part of the army games took place in Kazakhstan, by the way. The two countries, the two governments, the two militaries have very close relations. There's a lot of trade. Kazakhstani citizens have moved to Russia to study there. Russians have. There's still a significant amount of ethnic Russians that move in that live in Kazakhstan, and just going back to your previous question, that could be a reason for for Russia to to want to, and that could be an excuse that Russia could use to to attack Kazakhstan to protect the ethnic Russians that live in northern Kazakhstan. They're not at risk by any means, but you know that, that could be an excuse. But yeah, so there's there's a significant population of ethnic Russians that still live in Kazakhstan. So the two countries have very close relations, and that that cannot be avoided. You mentioned China, and this is something, of course, I want to ask about, because China is a quite interesting case, somewhat supporting Russia, but definitely playing on political games. But also China, of course, has interests in the Central Asia. So how closely is China observing the current state of Russia-Kazakhstan's relations and maybe what kind of lessons China is taking from the situation? Definitely China is very interested in Central Asia, in Kazakhstan in particular. Kazakhstan is I like to call the, the buckle 
in the Belt and Road, in China's Belt and Road Initiative. China has certainly invested a lot of money in Kazakhstan's Kazakhstan, in transportation infrastructure. Kazakhstan-Chinese relations are very close. In 2022, bilateral relations were around $20 billion, so $4 billion less than Russia. That doesn't even include investments, just straight were $20 billion. I don't see how much more bilateral relations between China and Kazakhstan can increase in terms of trade, in terms of investment. They're already quite high. I think that's, that's one issue that I wanted to mention. A second issue is that uh, when it comes to like this quest for influence in, in Central Asia, for example, between Russia and China, one thing that I, I like to mention is that this is a basic, very basic fact in, in terms of geopolitics, of global geopolitics. The point is that you can only be a leader if somebody wants to follow you, in the sense that just because Russia is more in, uh, looking at more involved in Ukraine. China cannot simply say, "Well, we're now we're going to become the leaders of Central Asia." What countries in the Central Asia oppose this? Central Asian governments have to like say, "Yeah, we 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 want to start following China. We want to follow Chinese policies regarding whatever you whatever policy issue that you want to think about." That's not necessarily the case. In fact, while Kazakhstan has very close relations with China, Kazakhstan also doesn't want to be perceived as a satellite of China. And in the past, not only for international reasons, for foreign policy reasons, but also for domestic issues. What am I talking about? In late 2019, there were major protests in southwest Kazakhstan. Why? Because of anti-Chinese sentiments. There were news, the reports that Chinese companies, I think like around 55 or maybe more, wanted to build infrastructure in southwest Kazakhstan. They were going to bring Chinese workers to work in that region. Kazakhstanis didn't like that. So they started protesting against it. They protest against that. They have protested against the treatment of ethnic Kazakhs, China's Xinjiang province or East Turkestan. You know, they have been sent to some of the so-called uh, detention or re-education camps along with the Uyghurs. Uh, Kazakhstan cities have protested against the belief that Chinese companies are buying Kazakhstani land as well. So the, the, it's not just that the government doesn't want to be that the Kazakhstani government doesn't want to be a satellite of China, but it re the realize the fact that ch the Kazakhstani people don't want greater Chinese influence in their country. So in that sense, Kazakhstan has man certainly maintained close relations with China. The President Xi Jinping was just in Kazakhstan in September, I think was the first visit that they had had, first international visit that he has made since the COVID pandemic began. So while relations between China and Kazakhstan are close, I don't see them gain too much closer just because I don't think that the Kazakhstani government wants to alienate its own population. As for the second part of your question regarding what lessons China is learning about Central Asia regarding Russia, I think that the obvious lesson should be that it's not to antagonize Central Asia, not to push them too much, not to assume that they're going to blindly follow Beijing like they won't in the same way that they won't blindly follow Moscow. With regards to this and the Russian war, I think that we can also say that the current situation triggered a deeper surge for national identity among Kazakh people. Would you agree? Absolutely. In just one quick example is at the beginning of the war, some of the major anti-Russia protests, or at least anti-war protests that took, took place in Central Asia, took place in Almaty, in Kazakhstan. So while there is certainly an affinity between Kazakhs and, and, and Russians, between ethnic Russians that live in Kazakhstan, there's a lot of history that, they two have, that, that these two governments have together, that these two countries have together, you know, Neither uh, the, the Kazakhstan people want to blindly follow Russia and the government doesn't want to do it either. At the beginning of our conversation, I said that we will crisscross the world a bit. So let's move from Kazakhstan to Moldova that he also follows. At the beginning of the Russian large-scale invasion, they were concerned the Russians will try to take over Odessa and they will try to control the territory stretch into Transnistria. 
nothing like that has happened so far. And I have to say, they always saw this as a pretty far-fetched scenario. And I really don't think that the people in Transnistria are super eager to fight on the side of Russia. How do you see this? What kind of effect has the war had on the separatist region and its relation with Kisinau? The separatist region of Transnistria is not very transparent or open to outside researchers. So getting a good understanding of what Transnistrian authorities are thinking is, is quite tricky. So that, that's my one caveat. I will say that your statement about the Russians going through Odessa again to Transnistria, reaching Transnistria somehow. At the beginning of the war of Ukraine, there were some bizarre incidents that took place in Transnistria. Essentially, there were explosions between April and May in the separatist region. I believe it was in, on April 25th, there were explosions that hit Transnistria's Ministry of State Security in Tiraspol, which is the so-called capital of the separatist region. They were attributed apparently to a grenade launcher. Then the next day, there were two explosions at the Grigoriopol transmitter in Mayak, which knocked out two radio antennas. There have been uh, reports that there were explosions near former airport in Baranzao as well, that which may have been attributed to drones. Well, nobody has claimed the responsibility for these this incidents. I'm not going to call them attacks, but incidents. There are many uh, theories about it. Uh, one theory is that there's a power struggle within the Transnistrian separatist government. Other theories, uh, which I'm concerned about, is that the Transnistrian separatist government carries some kind of these attacks as a false flag operation. So they can blame them either Moldova or the United States or Ukraine. And that could justify a future Russian military operation. That's not, I, I think, that's not unthinkable. I mean, this like a, this this part of like a long-term strategy that we should take into account. That's point one. Point two, as where Transnistrians want to fight for Russia, I agree with you that they, they really don't want to. There have been so many media reports, interviews with Transnistrians that they say they just don't want to be part of it. Part of it is just pragmatism. Even though trans, the Transnistrian government relies on Moscow for its existence, Transnistria's main trade partner is actually Europe. Transnistrian goods go from Moldova, they go from Romania, and then they reach the wider European uh, market. The Transnistrian government and people don't want European sanctions, like Belarus is suffering, like, like Russia is suffering. The, my second point of why Transnistria doesn't want to get involved in this fight is has to do with gas. Why is the gas important here? Transnistria obtains natural gas from Russia via Gazprom. This natural gas, the pipelines, has to go through Moldova. Moldova has made very clear, at least hinted at, that if Transnistria takes a stance that is too pro-Moscow, then literally Kishina can simply turn off the gas and say, well, well you're just not going to get any more of, of our natural gas. Moscow has no other way to send gas to Transnistria. Ukraine is not going to send them gas or electricity either. So Transnistria would simply freeze, quite literally, through this winter that we are in. So these are two pragmatic reasons why Transnistria doesn't want to get involved in the war. As for the troops themselves, Moldova has not authorized new Russian troops to go to Transnistria in quite some time. The so-called peacekeepers and individuals that have Russian uniforms right now in Transnistria, quite a few of them are actually just Transnistrians who were, have been given Russian IDs, so they count as Russian soldiers, even though they probably have never been to Russia, at least quite, the majority of them, I assume. There were concerns at the beginning of the war that either Russia could link up to Transnistria or that Transnistria could just with whatever troops they have, open up a new theater of operations against Ukraine. Now, if that has happened, I don't think it's going to happen, but that's certainly a concern. As for Kishnau, and uh, there's one more thing I want to mention when it comes to Kishnau and Tiraspol. What would it be? A few weeks ago, around December, the Moldovan parliament passed a new, is, is, is preparing to pass a new law, at least they're discussed in the, in the parliament uh, floor, which will essentially 
pass amendments to Moldovan criminal code to tighten state security by banning, and I think I'm going to quote this uh, directly, the initiation, organization, or setting up of illegal intelligence structures on the territory of the country. By country, you know, you mean all of Moldova, which kind of means Transnistria by default. The Transnistrians have criticized this law. They said they're going to pass a similar law by their so-called lawmakers to by banning uh, illegal intelligence structures within their territory. So this is a not really an escalation of, of tensions between Kishinev and Tiraspol, but it's problematic. To be fair, what, what I think that Moldovan government is concerned about is that, and I think you, you can probably relate to that, people from our, your listeners from Eastern Europe and the post-Soviet state can really relate to this, that even today there are individuals in Moldova that actually have good memories of Russia. There are associations of World War II veterans who remember fighting for the, for the Red Army during the war. There are, there are associations of ethnic Russians that, actually believe that you no know, Russia is their friend, their neighbor, their uncle Ivan. And they organize festivals or fairs or parades. They will go to schools and talk to the Moldovan youth about, oh, this is what, they, what the Russians have done for us and this is why we're, we should be friends. The Moldovan government, I think, is what, this is what the Moldovan government is concerned about, that these organizations could just continue promoting a pro-Moscow message to the Moldovan youth, to the Moldovan wider population. What's going to be the future of this organization? I don't really know, but certainly this is a concern for for Kishina. Alex, to wrap it up, let's switch the continents, we can say. If you look at Latin America, did the invasion somewhat change the attitude towards Russia, which traditionally has some allies in the region? How is the war perceived in Latin America? There's definitely a lot to say about Latin America and the Caribbean. Let me start with this fact. Latin America and the Caribbean are two regions that are constituted by 33 countries. Out of the 33 countries, I would say that the Russia's strongest allies nowadays are Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, and to a lesser extent Bolivia. Anecdotally, in December, the Nicaraguan National Assembly participated in the celebrations of the 78 years of Nicaragua-Russia relations. There was a reception in the Russian embassy in Nicaragua, and some Nicaraguan lawmakers uh, assisted. But even other countries like Mexico, Peru, Brazil, Argentina have generally had cordial relations with Russia. Peru, for example, operates a lot of significant quantity of Russian military equipment, MI helicopters, T-55 tanks, which dates back to the Soviet Union. And in Prior to the war, there was talk about trade pacts between the Russia-led European Economic Union and South America trade blocs like, like Mercosur. Obviously, the COVID pandemic first and then the war have free, frozen any kind of potential cooperation between and trade projects between the, Russia and, and this region. Regarding how Latin America and the Caribbean have reacted towards Ukraine, uh, I will say that the most countries have been pro-Ukraine. For example, when it comes to the April vote that uh, in which at the United Nations General Assembly, in which which suspended Russia from the United Nations New Human Rights Council, most countries voted in favor of this solution, like Peru, Ecuador, Dominican Republic, Costa Rica, Chile. Uh, only the only countries that voted against this resolution were Nicaragua, Cuba, and Bolivia. Uh, governments like Argentina and Colombia either condemned the invasion or at least called for ceasefires and peace. The only country, the only government that has openly supported the Russian government and its, the Russian military operation is Venezuela. As you can imagine, President Nicolas Maduro has openly said that the Russia has its total support. And as recently as December, the Russian Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak was in Venezuela. He met with the Venezuelan oil minister Tarek El Asiami and the support discussed bilateral cooperation. As the, how the war has been perceived in Latin America, uh, I will say that, first of all, Russia and Ukraine are very far from Latin America. It's not a part of the world, the world that Latin America knows much about. 
local news outlets uh, that cover the war, they rely on information that is provided by other international news agencies that, that you know about, like Reuters, Associated Press, or EFE, the Spanish news agency. Uh, for the general population to follow the war, they need to watch, to really follow the war, they need to watch international news agencies in Spanish, like CNN Spanish or France 24, which is quite popular. But there are also news Russian news agencies that have a significant presence or significant operations in, in Latin America. I mean, I'm talking about Spotnik Mundo and RT, which obviously give a different point of view regarding the war. Some Latin American governments, like I believe Peru temporarily and Uruguay, have suspended RT from broadcasting their in, in, in local channels, but obviously the website can till, still be visited. So that, I, I, unfortunately, or you know, from the point of view of you know Ukraine and the United States and, the, and their allies, and fortunately for the, for the point of view of Russia, uh, the Latin American population that does watch RT and Sputnik probably not have, they probably believe that Russia is correct in their in the arguments that they have or their justifications that they have for carrying out this invasion of Ukraine. Uh, I will say that as a final point that as important as the war in Ukraine is, and you know that because you know you being Slovakian, they're your neighbors. There are other more dom- domestic challenges and concerns that people in Latin America. Have that they focus on the more, that are, that are more of a priority for them to focus on. There were just a few days ago, there were a few violent protests in Brazil, as you know very well, you, you covered that for your website. There have been protests against the legitimate government in Peru and the uh, President Dina. In Mexico, Ovidio Guzman, who's the son of the drug lord Chapo Guzman, was recently arrested. It's a huge news for, for in Mexico. There's, there was a lot of violence as well as, as a cause of the, because of this arrest. In the Salvador, there's a major security operation going on to crack down the Mala Salvatrucha gangs. In Argentina, the inflation right now is 94.8%. I'm going to say the number again, 94.8%. And there are going to be general elections this year for president, which means that the Argentine population is very much focused on the economy and they're much focused on domestic politics. In Haiti, there's no government. The president was murdered in 2021 and the prime minister keeps extending power, you know, keeps extending his staying power, even though he should not be in power anymore. There's a lot of violence in Ecuador as well. There have been a wave of violence in Ecuadorian prisons just very recently. So uh, as important as the war is, this is not the, like I said, to repeat myself, as important as the war in Ukraine is for the world, there are more immediate priorities that the Latin American and Caribbean governments have to focus on. Latin American governments have generally demonstrated that they are in favor of Ukraine, but there are now that there's not really much that they can do except for calling for ceasefires and, and peace. We don't. I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I don't think that the, the points of view of the Venezuelan government or Nicaragua or Cuba are going to change either. They're going to continue su- supporting Russia. So I think the, the lines are very clear on who supports which country and why. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, Please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. Mm-hmm.